Well, Brother Mead, we want you to come, and uh, we got to meet him a little bit uh, the other night as pastor kind of interviewed him. I enjoyed that. Uh, I really did, and uh, appreciate uh, he and his wife and their testimony for the Lord, and I'm anxious uh, to hear him preach this morning. Let's welcome Brother Mead to College Chapel this morning. You can be seated. You can be seated. It is a great blessing and an honor to be here at West Coast Baptist College and Lancaster Baptist Church. Uh, on the back table, before you go, I want to mention this before we get into it, but I have some brochures sitting out there. We have something we're call launching called the Sahara Initiative, and it's an initiative that was started back in the 60s and 70s to get missionaries to the Sahara Desert, scattered out in regions where there were really no missionaries at all, and uh, several missionaries uh, surrendered out of that initiative. One of them uh, was a missionary by the name of J.B. Godfrey, and he went to Senegal, West Africa, and Ron Bragg, and, and some other men, and went to different parts of the world while most of those men have come off the field and retired. And as it stands with our mission board, we are the last missionaries in North Africa, and we have contacts all across uh, Northern Africa. We need more missionaries in Senegal. We have a young couple raising support to go to the Gambia, which is a country right inside Senegal. We have contacts in other nations. There's one missionary. He's recently retired. He was spent 40 years in this particular nation. Speaks eight languages. It'll take about eight people just to replace him. He had the most listened to radio broadcast in his country, and it would scatter into countries like Libya and Northern Nigeria. This is, this is terrorist territory. And about God is at work in the Islamic world. I know what you see on TV, it, it's, uh, it looks intimidating, but God is at work. And he just received correspondence from a village out in the middle of the desert. They had been listening to his radio broadcast for about a year, and they wrote him and said, we have about 20 men that have just trusted Christ as Savior. And uh, we're using all kinds of different means and tools to get the gospel out, but uh, we need boots on the ground taking the gospel face-to-face. -face. And so we have a couple internship programs, a one-year intensive program for graduates. We have a, uh, some short-term programs. also have a book that we publish, kind of shares a little bit about our testimony. It's called The Next Step, Finding Your Where and the Call to Go. And uh, there's a few copies left. First come, first serve. You grab it. It's on the back two tables. You can have it. If you don't get to a book, take one of my cards, email me, and I'll send you a PDF copy uh, if you would like to do that. It is just, it is an... I, I, I cannot think of anything I would rather be doing than being a missionary. Yesterday I got to sit with Pastor Chapel at dinner and with, sincerely he said, if, there, if I could live life over again, I'd, I love what God did through me here and I love what God's doing, but I would want to be a missionary. And I tell you, there's, there's no better thing you can do with your life than being a missionary. Remember when we first went over, it's a, it's a blessing to see Ian and Zachary and Tiffany Russell here. Man, we went over there. They were just little munchkins running around in the street playing soccer barefoot. And uh, they, yeah, when you're a missionary, one of the big things of getting over to another country is, is acquiring the language. And man, they spoke Wolof, which is Senegalese language, like, like little Africans running around. And uh, then another part of being a missionary when you first arrive is learning to appreciate the culture. I, I learned a lot from the Russell kids just how they adapted to the culture, and I just watched them and did what they did to learn about the culture. I mean, I remember sometimes people ask, you, did you face any culture shock going over? And, and I, can, I honestly, I cannot think of any particular moment when I faced any type of culture shock. I, I had a little bit of reverse culture shock coming back the first time, but culture shock, really, I, 
we expected it to be bad, and we got there, and it was pretty bad. So, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't any worse than what we were expecting. But, uh, but I remember the Russells, uh, first year we were there for Christmas, they gave me this gift of this beautiful blue material. And over there, we, when we dress up for church, we wear robes. Kind of an Arabic influence where we're at. It's predominantly Islamic. It's a robe. Okay, not a dress. It's a robe. And oh, there's a picture of this robe. So I decided, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dress like they dress. That's part of adapting to the culture. So they got me this really nice blue material. I said, I'm going to go down to my tailor, and I'm going to have the nicest blue robe. I'm a, I'm a little bit taller, so I'm going to have this really long robe. I'm going to have the nicest embroidery. I can have designed on this bad boy. I'm going to put cufflinks on it. I'm going to bling this thing out. He's going to be the nicest. In Wolof, it's called a boo-boo. He's going to have the nicest boo-boo any two-bob ever wore. Two-bob's a white guy. And I'll tell you what, I'd go out in the street, and uh, people I didn't even know, they would stop me, and they'd go, hey, two-bob, which means, hey, white guy, your robe, it's beautiful. I go, oh, thanks. And then they would say something else. I, I didn't realize it was a compliment at this time. But they would say, hey, Tubab, which in Wolof means give it to me. <laughs> give it to you. And they'll do that sometimes. You'll be, uh, one time I was, had my daughter in my arms. And, ah, Tubab, Sadom, your daughter is beautiful. Maumako, give her to me. I thought, I'm about to punch this guy. What are you talking about? <laughs> Till I realize what, what it, they're doing is complimenting you. And so the way you respond, you can respond by saying, which means once I find its twin, then I'll offer you its twin. So I said, once I find the twin uh, uh, outfit, I'll give you the twin. And you better pray you don't have twins over there so that you literally have to give away a twin. Anyways, so I thought, man, this is great. You know, I'm dressing like they dress. People love it here. I'm adapting to the culture. We go back on our first furlough. I remember the first Sunday we go back to church, and we have a missions-minded church in Fostoria, Michigan. But we're, we're in the middle of a cornfield. We are rural Michigan, and uh, we're mission-minded, but I thought, man, I'm going to wear my boo-boo to church. Man, I'm, I, everybody's going to be so impressed. They're going to think, there he is, the next Hudson Taylor coming home, <laughs> dressing as they dress. And I said, Julie, put on your African outfit. She said, you go ahead. I'm, I'm I said, well, you're missing out. They're going to all look at me. So I put my boob on, got my cufflinks in. I walked into church, man. I'm just waiting for somebody to say something. I got my head held high. Deacon comes around the corner. And he goes, Josh, what happened, man? When, when did you start wearing dresses? I said, it's not a dress. <laughs> it's a boo-boo. <laughs> he just... He's just a joker. So I'm sitting in our young couple's class, and I'm sitting there just waiting, man, somebody, is the teacher going to point me out? Somebody going to say something? Is that what you wear over there, you know, impressed? Finally, some wise guy in the back piped up and said, must be nice being a missionary. Wish I could wear pajamas to church. I said, it's a boo-boo. <laughs> Never again. I won't wear it. Forget it. And so a little bit of reverse culture shock, but that's all right. Well, it's an honor to be here. I, turn to 2 Kings chapter 5, if you would. 2 Kings chapter 5. I love the stories of the Bible. The greatest stories ever told are written in the pages of Scripture. I'll tell you what, Marvel Comics got nothing on the stories of the Bible. Superman ain't got nothing on Samson, okay? These, these are the greatest stories ever told, and they're great because they're true. But even more importantly than the fact that they're true is that the Bible says of itself that the Word of God is quick and powerful. You know what that means? The word quick means it's living. 
What that means is that the Word of God is alive. It is relevant to your need. The Word of God is relevant to whatever situation you are going through. And what I love about the Bible is Paul said these stories were written for our admonition, for our learning. The Bible is alive. It means that you can plug yourself in. Whatever you're going through, whatever situation you are going through, you can plug yourself into the story, the narrative of Scripture, and find the solution to whatever you're going through. The stories of the Bible are our stories. The stories of the Bible are not just what God has done in the past, but what God is doing now. I love all the stories in the Bible. This is one of my favorite stories. Story about Naaman. We're introduced to the first character in verse 1. Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, 1 Kings chapter 5, verse 1, was a great man with his master and honorable because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. And the Syrians had gone out by companies and had brought away captive out of the land of Israel, a little maid. And she waited on Naaman's wife, and she said unto her mistress, Would God my Lord were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. Skip down to verse 9. So Naaman came with his horses and with his chariots, and he stood at the door of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, Go and wash in Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. Skip over to verse 14. Then went he down and dipped himself seven times in Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh came again like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. In our story, we are introduced to the first character, a man named Naaman. The Bible says of Naaman that he was the captain, the host of the king of Syria. He was a great man with his master. He was an honorable man. He was a man of integrity because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. With all of his accolades, with, all of, with his position as a general, a, a mighty man, the Bible says, a man of integrity, with all that Naaman was, at the end of the day, the Bible says he was a leper. And we know often in Bible, leprosy is compared to sin. Naaman, in our story, represents the best that the world has to offer. In our story, we're introduced to a mighty man with a great need, but with no solution to that need. Naaman really represents the best that the world has to offer. He was a great man. He was an honorable man, a man of integrity, an outstanding man. He could command armies. He commanded the respect of his soldiers. He was a man who was used to being in charge. He could encourage on the battlefield. He was a man of integrity. But at the end of the day, he was a leper. And I would imagine for somebody like Naaman, who is used to having a regiment, who is used to being in control, I would imagine the frustration that at the end of the day, he was a leper and there was nothing he could do about it. See, the world is powerful corporately but they're hurting individually. There's great unity in the world. The world has a lot to offer, and they build their great, their great cities and our great civilizations. And we have our great religions around the world, and they, they build their great mosques and their great cathedrals. But at the end of the day, those people in Tibet, people in Africa, they're just sinners, and they have no solution to the need, absolutely no solution. We're introduced to this mighty man who had a great need, but no solution. But God's got a plan. 
God is about to interrupt his life. And the Bible says in verse 2, we're introduced to our second character, a little girl who's put into a bad situation but has a big God. And the Syrians had gone out by companies that had brought away captive out of the land of Israel, a little maid, and she waited on Naaman's wife. She said unto her mistress, Would God my Lord were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. Imagine, put yourself in this little girl's shoes. Here she is sitting at home, minding her own business. We don't know what age she is, a young teenager, preteen, a teenager, a young adult in her 20s, whatever age she was. There she is at home, enjoying dinner with her family, when out of nowhere the Syrian soldiers burst into her home and throw her dad to the ground, push her mom aside. They sweep her up, take her out, put her on horseback, and off she goes into the darkness to an unknown country, country where she doesn't know the language, she doesn't know the culture, she doesn't know what happened to her family, and to make matters worse, she's put in the home as a slave girl for the wife of the man who sanctioned her this very situation that she was put into. Here's a little girl put into a very bad, no good, terrible, horrible situation. If anybody has precedent to be bitter about the situation she found herself in life, if anybody has precedent to be anger, angry about the situation she's in, it'd be this little girl. I don't know if I would have responded the way she did to a situation like that. Here she is over there. I can imagine she'd be over there washing the dishes or something or doing the laundry. Naaman gets home, and as most men do, they're tough, you know, in front of their soldiers. He's trying to hide the fact that he's a leper. I'm sure leprosy would, would lead to a life of isolation and being a man of Naaman's stature. I'm sure he did everything he could to hide the fact that he was a leper. And the world does everything they can to try to cover up the true need. I, try, I tell our church all the time, don't, don't be intimidated by, by the great mosque and the great building and the great crowds that the false religions that they are gathering because it, a lot of the false religion, it's basically like the, the fake trees we like to decorate our, our auditoriums with. They, they look good. They're expensive. It costs a lot to put them up. They look good on the outside, but they have nothing to offer. There's no life in them. And the church and synagogue may just be a little sapling going out of the ground, and there may not be much to look at when you see that little sapling going around. But I'd far rather have that little sapling growing out of the ground because there's life there, because there's potential there, because God is there. And here's Naaman comes home like any guy does with any type of uh, hurt or pain. He's trying to be tough around his friends, but he gets home, he takes his helmet off, starts complaining to his wife, oh, it hurts so bad. Leprosy, I got another boil on my hand, he's scratching. Now, if I was this little girl and I heard Naaman in the other room moping and grumbling and crying, I'd be in there washing dishes saying, good, I hope it hurts. Oh, I hope he gets another boil. I, I hope, I hope he has to itch and he's in the middle of the battle and he has to scratch his nose and, and he gets distracted and he gets killed. I hope that his nose falls off. I, I, I might have responded that way. I don't know if I would have responded the way she did. But she hears about Naaman's plight. And she goes up and finds another little servant girl, tugs on her dress and says, you know, I couldn't help but overhear that Naaman has leprosy. And you know, I, I, I know a prophet who, who is a prophet of the true God, and if Naaman could just get to this prophet, he could heal him of his leprosy. Here's a little girl put into a bad situation, a situation she didn't choose, but she decided, 
I got a big God, and I want God to use me in this. Look, when Elizabeth Elliot went with her husband to the Aka Indians, I would imagine she did not want or even expect her husband to be killed by those Aka Indians. But she made a decision in a bad situation. I'm going to take my kids, and I'm going to go march triumphantly into that village, and I'm going to tell them that though the men that you killed on that battlefield, they are not dead, as you might suppose. They are alive today, and the message they wanted to bring you is a message of hope and love, and that tribe came came to Jesus Christ, and they began going out and spreading the gospel throughout other parts of Ecuador. Look, she took a bad situation and decided, my God's a big God, and my God's a God who knows exactly what's going on, and I'm just going to trust him and be a testimony as he desires me to be. And listen to this. Her simple testimony initiates a great spiritual journey. Your simple testimony, God will use on someone's spiritual journey. See, the Bible says we are called to be witnesses. Preaching is what we do. Witnesses is what you are. You are a witness. I'm not a missionary or preacher. You, you are a witness. Jesus said, you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. When Jesus told his disciples that, and I, and I understand in missions conferences, and you've heard it before, Jerusalem, we got to reach our Jerusalem and reach Judea and Samaria. The reason Jesus said you got to reach Jerusalem is because that's where they were. You be a witness where you are. And Jesus said, but you're not going to stop there. You're going to spread out. In fact, you're no longer. The disciples asked him in Acts 1, how are we going to do this? Are, we going to, are you going to reestablish the kingdom and the nation of Israel? Is that how we're going to win the world? Jesus said, no, this is a reorganization of operation. There's no, no headquarters for the church. You are going to spread the gospel. You're going to start in Jerusalem because that's where you are. Then you're going to go to Judea and Samaria unto the uttermost part of the world. So where's the uttermost? Is it strictly geographical, a location, geographic? Is it, is it the uttermost? For the Chinese believer today, meeting underground for fear of persecution, Lancaster, California is the uttermost, geographically speaking. For Chattanooga, Tennessee, Lancaster is the uttermost, okay, geographically speaking. It's not so much a geographical location as it is there where Christ is not known. Jesus said, you're going to start where you are, but the church is going to advance the gospel. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not, shall not prevail against it. Jesus used those words on, on purpose. Where are the gates of hell? Where are the gate, what are gates for? The gates are the final defense of a city. You see, Satan is on the defense. Satan has no offense. The gates of hell were the final defense of the city, and Jesus said, I will build my church. And yes, Satan is trying to attack the church, but he said, listen, the gates of hell, Satan, all he has are defenses, and we, the church, are to take the gospel where the gates of hell are standing. Where are the gates of hell? They stand at the border of every nation where Jesus Christ is not named. They stand at the border of every nation under Sharia law where it is illegal to hold church services. They stand at the border of Tibet. They stand at the border of the heart of your neighbor who's never heard the name of Jesus. They, the uttermost. Where is the uttermost? It's Tibet. It's Africa. It is here in Lancaster, California, where Jesus has never been known, where Jesus is not heard. Jesus promised if we take the truth of the gospel, the gates of hell will prove futile to the advance of the gospel. The only reason the gates of hell are still standing is because we have not advanced against it with all our might. We're to reach our uttermost, where Christ is not named. God wants to use you as a witness. A witness. 
And her simple testimony initiates a great spiritual journey. There's several responses to this, several, this simple testimony. The Bible says the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. There will be a response to the gospel when you preach it. Sometimes there's resistance and sometimes there's acceptance and indifference. There will be a response. That's one thing God has guaranteed. And God has not guaranteed the results, maybe as we might expect it, but God has guaranteed that if we go to the uttermost, we will triumph. Praise be to God, who always causes us to triumph in Christ Jesus and maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. The triumph of missions is not that thousands are saved, and we pray that that will take place, but the true triumph of missions is that Jesus is made known where he has never been made known. And that's what we're called to do. And there's, there's some resistance. There's a response. First, we see a, 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 a king's demand. The Bible says in verse 5, And the king of Syria said, Go to, and I will send a letter unto the king of Israel. And he departed with him ten talents of silver and six thousand pieces of gold and ten changes of raiment. It's amazing the, the arrogancy of this heathen king. This king, by the way, who, who's been serving this heathen God his entire life, who had given no allegiance to the true Jehovah God, this heathen king who has been serving a heathen God, a God, by the way, who has done nothing for Naaman's true plight, a God who he has been serving dedicated, who he has been sacrificing to, who has done nothing to fix Naaman's true need. He says, well, I'm going to write a letter and God's going to do what I want. <laughs> And he writes a letter and he sends Naaman off. Naaman makes his way over. We see a king in despair. Look at the king of Israel, his response. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, Now when this letter is come unto thee, behold, I have therewith sent Naaman my servant to thee, that thou mayest recover him of his leprosy. Here is an impossible request, okay? And what God asks of you and I, it is an impossible request. Going into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. This is an impossible task. And the king's response revealed his proximity to God. Look at his despair to this, his response to this impossible request. It came to pass when the king of Israel had read the letter that he rent his clothes. He said, am I God to kill and make alive that this man descend unto me to recover a man of his leprosy? Wherefore, consider, I pray you, and see how he seeketh after me a quarrel. He said, I can't do it. Well, of course you can't. This is an impossible task. You can't heal him of his leprosy. In despair, he said, I can't do it. How on earth can I go to the middle of a desert in North Africa and reach Muslims for Christ? I have nothing in my background to relate to people over there. But God delights to take the improbable so he can do the impossible. God delights to use the unlikely so he can do the impossible. You see, if God has called me, he'll equip me. And if God has sent me, then he'll go with me. Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the uttermost part of the earth. This king responds by saying, I can't. And look, you may look at the world missions or the pastorate or marrying a preacher's wife or marrying a missionary wife. You might marry a, a missionary if you're a woman. You may look at it and say, I don't think I can do it. None of us can. 
but God gets all the glory in it. But he said, I can't. I can't. Secondly, in this king's despair, what we can learn from him is don't, don't see the world the way this king saw it. See, he, kinda, he was looking at the world through politics. We need to see the world as Christ does. He looked at this man as a foreign aggressor. He looked at this man as a threat rather than a soul that needs Jesus Christ. And as I travel across America and Canada and share my burden for Muslim people, especially in Senegal and in North America, in North Africa, I, I, am, I am grieved by the hatred I have heard expressed from good Christian people toward Muslims. Now, I understand Islam is a satanic, it is, it is diametrically opposed to Christianity and all that Jesus preached. I understand that. But Naaman's here, and this, here's this big opportunity. Here's an opportunity to show how great our God is. And rather than seeing this opportunity as an opportunity to reach this guy with the gospel, to reach this guy with the testimony of God, he looks at it through the lens of politics. And I know the world today is in a mess. I've heard people say, oh, these immigrants coming to our nation, you're not going to ruin our culture. Are you going to their nation? Amen. Are you going to reach them where they're at? Probably not, unless you get kidnapped, maybe, and taken. So God's bringing them to us. And we're called to reach the uttermost, so he'll bring us to the uttermost. Learn to see the world the way Christ does, as a soul in need of a Savior. Then we see the prophet's declaration. The prophet, down in verse 8, when Elisha, the man of God, had heard the king of Israel had rent his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes? Let him come now to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Elisha's response revealed his proximity to God. He knew, look, Elisha understood, I, I can't do it. I'm just a messenger. I am just a representative of God, but my God can do it. And Elisha's response to this impossible request revealed his faith in God. God. He said, let him come. We're going to point him to God. And God will take care of this. Let him come. Let him come. You know what college is about? And I wouldn't trade my college years for anything, but I wouldn't want to repeat them either. But I wouldn't trade them for anything. You know what college is about? It's about God taking you from believing you can do the probable to taking you to knowing you can do the impossible. See, when the disciples, Jesus came to the disciples walking on water. I love that story. They're out there rowing. And Jesus is watching them from the mountaintop. And he could have came out any time. And God sees you in your struggle. And I don't know, sometimes it seems like God's not there. Maybe God's not listening, but he's watching. And he's watching them out there. Why? He's waiting until these fishermen, these professional fishermen, get to the very end of themselves. And they're out rowing and toiling for about seven or eight hours till finally they had come to their wit's end. And Jesus starts walking on the water. Now, Jesus could have calmed the storm before he stepped out and started making his way across, but he didn't. He comes out in the middle of the storm, and he made as if he would have gone by. And his disciples look out, and they see Jesus walking, and they were afraid. They thought they saw a ghost which tells me one of two things. Either seeing ghosts walk on water was a common occurrence at that time, or the latter, which I think is more likely, that our fear causes us to make irrational conclusions about what God wants of us. Fear drives us to do things that, that God doesn't want us to do. And here Jesus walking on, and finally he says, no, it's me, don't worry about it. Peace, don't be afraid. And they were calm. 
Now, it's one thing to believe that Jesus can walk on water. That's probable. I can believe that. It's one thing to believe that Jesus can walk on water. It's another thing to believe that if Jesus had called me, I could step out of the boat in the middle of this storm and join him. And Peter said, hey, I know it's probable that Jesus can walk on water, but if Jesus is out there, I'm going to join him on the water. And if it's really you, Lord, I'm coming out. You see how he said it? If it's really you, he's not even sure. He's not sure if this is what God wants for him. He's not sure if it's really Jesus or not. But if there's a chance that it's Jesus out there, I want to be where he is. Is the will of God safe? Sometimes people ask, look, if you have to ask, is the will of God safe? You might as well go home now. It's not about whether it's safe or not. Is, it, is God sovereign? Is God in control? Is God in control of my life in every situation? And G Peter said, look, I know that God can do the impossible, and he is with me. And so Jesus, if it's you, I'm going to do the impossible and step out of the boat and walk on water by faith. And you can do the same. And you can step out by faith and do something you never imagined God would want you to do. He'll take you from the improbable to the impossible. And you'll do things that you never imagined or dreamed of doing. By stepping out by faith. The prophet says, let him come. Now, Naaman is on a spiritual journey. God wants to bring him to salvation. His journey toward this miracle was a bumpy one. And as you're witnessing to the lost of the world, God is active in bringing people to himself. We get to partner with God in that. You know, God is more concerned about seeing people saved than you or I are. Sometimes people ask, what, what makes you an effective missionary? And I give the same answer every time. What makes us most effective in Senegal is that we're there. That's it. We're there. I remember we're walking up to our center one time and we had just built the building and we were going to start having Bible lessons and everything. We're two doors down from a local mosque and uh, it was about last, last spring. I was sitting in the center. We've been going for about four years in that location and uh, I was listening to the, the imam. He was preaching on the loudspeaker and uh, also I kept hearing Tubab, Tubab, and, uh, which is white guy. And so I stepped outside the door and he was preaching for about an hour on don't listen to the Tubab. Don't listen to what he's preaching. Jesus isn't God. And so there's opposition. Well, I'm walking up and we're just about to begin and we're just about to get started and uh, we're two doors down from the local mosque and we're surrounded by all Muslim families and I was a little bit nervous. I thought, man, how are people going to respond? We're going to be teaching the Bible here. We have a Bible library and we're going to have Bible prayer time and all this. We're, we're not going to hide what we are and I'm a little nervous. How are people going to respond? And as I'm walking up, we're about two weeks away from opening up and there is an older gentleman sitting on the front porch of our center and all the men in our on our street were gathered around him. I thought, oh man, are they already going to chase me out? You know, I don't know what's going to happen. And as I approached, the older gentleman looked at me and said, hey, Tubob, white guy, do you know Ron Bragg? I said, yeah, Ron Bragg, he was a missionary here for 17 years, and he's our director for our mission. He said, oh, Ron Bragg, he was the greatest Tubob I ever knew. He was the nicest guy. Man, he was, he, he, his door was always open, and man, he would do everything for you, and he loved us. He was the greatest guy. He said, do you know La Mission Baptiste? I said, yeah, I know the Mission Baptiste. That's what this is. We're doing what he did just in this part of town now. He turned to all those guys on our, on our street. He said, this is a great work. You get behind. This is a Muslim guy telling all my Muslim neighbors. He said, you get behind this guy. This is a good work that he's doing. You don't ever give him any problems. You don't ever give him any trouble. You just do what he needs. They're all wagging their head. I'm not in my hood. You don't listen to what he's saying, you know. 
I never saw him before that. I never saw him after that. God sent him there. I knew, hey, if God be for us, who can be against us? I thought, forget two weeks. I'm starting tonight. Here we go. And God began blessing me. God wants to take you from what you think you could probably do to saying, you know what, I can do it. It's impossible, but God's there. Now, Naaman's journey was a bumpy one. There's, there's a few things he had to overcome. In Senegal, when somebody receives Christ as Savior, there's a lot they got to overcome. I think of a young man we had the privilege to assist in his ordination. He was saved through a sister ministry in our town. And uh, amazing story how he came to Christ, and uh, he had gotten saved while his family found out about it. And his dad said, Gabriel, you, you can't live here anymore if you're going to be a Christian. Get out of our house. And he had to leave. He was only about 17, 18 years old. And so the missionary took him up, friend of ours, put him up in his house, and Gabriel was going to church faithfully. A few weeks later, his dad came back and said, Gabriel, you've got to stop going to church. He said, if you don't stop going to church, we're going to burn down the church building. Gabriel went to Pastor Sergio, a Brazilian missionary there, a friend of ours. He said, Pastor, I don't know what to do. My dad and my uncle said they're going to burn down the church if I don't stop going to church, but I, don't want, I want to keep going to church. What do I do? Pastor Sergio said, well, Gabriel, you keep going to church. You let them burn it down. He said, are you sure? He said, yeah, we're renting the facilities from a Muslim anyways. Let them burn it down. <laughs> they didn't burn it down. But they were doing everything they could to reconvert him. They took him back home. His brothers and his dad burst into his room one night. They threw him in the shower. They started scrubbing him down. He's half asleep. He said, what are you doing? They said, we're washing Christianity off of you. Oh, man, if Senegalese water could wash anything, it'd be a miracle, okay, let alone Christianity. They kicked him out again. Finally, they took him, and they, their last resort, and this happens often with young people in their teenage years or 20s, they took him to the holy city of Tuba, and they got a marabou. A marabou is basically a, a witch doctor who's now an Islamic leader. They have a lot of power in Senegal. And he gave the marabou some money and said, my son is a Christian, reconvert him to Islam. Marabou said, you come back in one month, he'll be carrying a Quran in one hand and prayer beads in the other. They locked him in a little room. We didn't know what had happened from him. Sergio came over, our church would pray for him. We hadn't heard from him for two weeks. He was finally able to find a phone. He called and uh, he said, you know, I'm locked in a room here in Tuba. They're trying to reconvert me. They forced me to drink holy water. They deprived me of food. They're blaring Quranic verses and recitation, all that. And they're doing spells and different things against me. And, and we thought, man, should we drive in and try to rescue him, you know, get him out of there or whatever? We didn't know what to do. And, and uh, Pastor Sergio asked him, why do you feel, are they threatening your life? He said, no. He said, well, just... Just endure two more weeks. Endure hardness. God will be with you. And he did. And, and every day the imam would come in, the marabou would come in. He'd say, you're going you're gonna to reconvert to Christianity, to Islam? And every day Gabriel would say the same thing. You do whatever you want. You can wash me. You can force me to drink your holy water. You can do your spells against me. But you cannot change the fact that Jesus is in my heart. That's not going to change. About a month Finished. He was able to meet two other young ladies going through the same situation, encourage them to stand for the Lord. His dad showed up a month later. The marabou came out stomping his feet. He threw Gabriel over to his dad, threw the money down at his feet. He said, get this kid out of here. Ever since he showed up, I don't pray. I don't have any peace. Uh, my spells aren't working anymore. He said, your kid is demon-possessed. Get him out of here. <laughs> his dad put his head down, picked up the money, took it. He thought, well, if I take my son to another city where he doesn't know any Christians, maybe there peer pressure will get him to go back to his. Took him to another city. And uh, Gabriel went out on a Saturday afternoon, and he said, Lord, I'd like to meet some Christians here. Went out to the marketplace and met the pastor of a Baptist church in that area. 
Sunday morning he got up, his dad was waiting. As Gabriel got up, he was getting ready. He wanted to see if Gabriel was going to pray or anything or if anything was changing his heart. Gabriel walked to the door. And here's what I love about missions. You get to see the Bible come alive. Jesus said, think not that I'm come to bring peace on the earth. I'm come to bring a sword to divide a father against a son and mother against a daughter. And if you don't take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of me, Jesus said. He got to the threshold of the door. His dad said, Gabriel, where are you going? He said, Dad, I'm going to church. He said, what? You don't know anybody here? He said, Gabriel, if you step outside that door, you're no longer my son. I don't ever want to see you again. If I'm sick, you don't come and visit me. If I'm dying, you don't come to my gravesite. I disown you. You're not mine anymore. And Gabriel had a decision to make to step across that threshold, pick up his cross, and carry it. And he did. And God is using him in a mighty way. A couple years later, he came to our church, and I haven't preached for several times. He said, my dad is losing his eyesight. I would like to raise some money to pay for surgery so he can physically see again. I said, make sure you tell him that this is from the Baptist church, from the Christians. Let him know. His dad received that money, and he said, son, why don't you come home and have a meal with us? Why don't you share a little bit about what you're believing? Hey, this is God's work. And yeah, it's a bumpy road. Naaman had a lot to learn. He had a lot to overcome. First of all, Naaman had to overcome the idea that salvation can be bought or worked for. Look what happens. Naaman shows up. He comes, verse 9, with his horses and with his chariot, and he stood at the door of the house of Elisha. He comes with all his money. He comes with his horses. He comes fully expecting that I'm going to buy this miracle. Naaman, in order to be saved, had to overcome the idea that salvation can be bought or worked for. And the world religions today tell us if you do enough good works, you can go to heaven. You know why that won't work? The Bible says, by grace he saved, through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You want to know why it doesn't work? You want to know why God's not going to take our good works and our bad works, and if our good works outweigh our bad works, then maybe he'll let us into heaven? The reason that won't work is because if God let me into heaven because of the good that I got done, then when all eternity is, I'm walking around heaven, guess what I get to talk about? Look what I did to get into heaven. Look what I did. God had to let me in because I'm a great guy. Look what I did. But that's not heaven. No, Jesus came and he paid the price. Jesus came and he took our sins. He took our leprosy, our incurable sin. And when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we who were enemies of God, he took our unrighteousness and he made us righteous through his death and his resurrection. And by the blood of Jesus Christ, we can be saved so that for all eternity we can say, look how good my God is. Look how good Jesus is. Look what he did for me. And that's a message we have to take to the nations. But workspace religion, there's a lot of pride in that. A lot of pride in that. And God has to break this down. He had to overcome the idea that salvation can be bought for work for. Secondly, he had, he had to overcome the fact that he was looking for a ritual to perform rather than a spiritual truth to obey and believe. He was looking for a ritual to perform. Look what the Bible says. Elijah sent a messenger. He said unto him, go and wash in Jordan seven times. Your flesh will come again to thee. Naaman was wroth. 
and went away and said, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand over this place and recover his leprosy. He was looking for a magic trick. He was looking for a ritual to perform. I don't know what kind of TV he got in Syria, but he even watched a little bit too much Benny Hinn. He thought, man, I'm going to show up and Lash is going to come out. He's going to stomp his feet and take his jacket off and clap my hands and hit me on the forehead and I'll have a seizure and bless God, I'll be healed. He said, he won't even come out and greet me. His pride is, is starting to resist. I deserve better than this. He was looking for a magic trick. You go anywhere in the world, the world is looking for something tangible to hold on to, a hope. You go to any Islamic nation and they're carrying their prayer beads. You go to any Buddhist nation, they got their prayer beads. You go to any Catholic nation, they got their prayer beads. Something tangible to hold on to, but it is a false hope. It offers no hope. The reason these prayer beads are a circle is because you got to go over and over and over again. And you finish it one time and you got to do it again. Why? Because you get it done once and it's not enough. You got to do it again and again and again. They don't know Jesus came to pay it all. It's the gospel that saves. Amen. He had to overcome the idea that it's not a religious ritual. Thirdly, he had to overcome his own preference in culture. He had to overcome his own preference in culture. Verse 11, he said, Behold, I thought this is how he would do it. He said, Are not the rivers, verse 12, of Abana and Fafar, rivers of Damascus, aren't they not better than all the rivers of Israel? Man, I wash in them and be clean. So he turned away and went away in a rage. And look, we are called to engage the culture. We are called to engage people where they are. But I'm hearing too many preachers, especially young preachers, talking about we need to, we need to contextualize the gospel. You don't contextualize the gospel. You contextualize yourself. Go ahead, put a boo-boo on and reach them. But you don't change the gospel. Look, the gospel is always relevant to the need of man, whether it's trendy with the culture or not. It's what the world needs. But he didn't like it. We have better ways of doing it. He went away in a rage. Fortunately, somebody was brave enough and wise enough to say, no, no, wait a second, Naaman. If he asked you to do some great thing, verse 13, my father, if the prophet had bid thee do some great thing, wouldst thou not have done it? How much rather than when he saith to thee, wash and be clean. And lastly, he had to overcome and he had to submit to the simplicity of the message. Go and wash, be clean. That's it. And somebody said, Naaman, would you go perform some ritual, some great thing if he asked you to? Well, of course. And the lost in this world will go to great lengths to appease their gods. They'll sacrifice anything. They'll give their all. It's a simple message. Go and wash and be clean. Naaman says, fine, I'll go. Goes down to the Jordan River and he dips in. He's like, this ugly, nasty river. All right, I'll go in. He dips down, mud sinking through his toes. He said, guys, this is gross. Gets in there and gets about waist deep. He said, all right, I'll dip. Dips down. I'm not clean. Prophet said seven times. Do it seven times, David. Just do one more. Fine. Goes again. Third time, nothing's happening. Fourth time, seven times. You got to obey what God said. Seven times. The seventh time, he dips his body under. He comes out. Everything goes in slow motion. The, the sun's glistening off his water. He shakes his head back and forth, <laughs> opens his eyes, looks at his hands, starts touching it. The Bible says it came again as a little child. He goes, <laughs> turns around. It's a miracle. I'm healed. If 
But here's the true miracle in the story. Verse number 15. And he returned to the man of God, he and all his company. And he came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. See, that's the true miracle of this story. Put his faith in the true Jehovah God. He said, I don't know if I could be a missionary. I don't know if I could do that. I don't know if I could go to another world. And I think we need more preachers, and we do. We need more men of God. We need more preachers, and we need more evangelists. We need, we need more of that. But when we look at this story, Elisha's not really even in it. We need more preachers, but we really don't. What we need more of is people like this little girl who said, hey, I'm called to be a witness. And if the preachers aren't going to go and the evangelists aren't going to go, hey, I don't know, there's not much for I have to offer, but I'll go. And God will use you. And Naaman, this great and mighty man, came to faith in God because a simple testimony of a little girl who had been put in a real bad situation but decided, my God's sovereign. And it's my job to view life through the lens of God's sovereignty, trusting that he is always good, Trusting that he is always good, and it's my job to make him look good through what he does in my life. I read a prayer letter just this morning. It's on my phone. Let me grab it real quick. If you don't mind, if you have the picture, I'd like you to show a picture. There's a family here. Two weeks ago, this family arrived into Cameroon. A week ago, he wrote this letter, Charles. He says, we are humbled to be representing Christ on your, your behalf. And we trust that you regularly are upholding us before the Lord in prayer regularly. Your continued prayers are vital if we are going to be successful in bringing the gospel to this dark place. Yesterday, Charles was in the wrong place at the wrong time. He was shot, and he died this morning. Two weeks on the field. Wrong place at the wrong time, but God is sovereign, and he knows what's going on. And I can't explain why something like that would happen, but I know God is about to do something great. God has a plan. We need to reach the world. I'm not saying everybody should go, but somebody should go. Somebody should go. Who here today will say, you know what, I'm not sure what God has for me, but I would come. Would you stand, bow your heads and close your eyes. Stand with me, please. Pianist will come. You say, God, I don't know if I'm called to be a preacher, but I want to be a witness. I want you to use my life as a witness. Kneel down where you're at, come forward. Say, Lord, I want you to use my life, my experience, who I am as a witness. I want you to say, Lord, if you want me to be a missionary, I'll be a missionary. I'll do whatever you want. You gave everything for me. I'll be willing to go. Take a moment with the Lord.